Today's episode is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com slash hiring. Monster. Find better. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today, this is really fun for me because this person uh, is not only somebody I've admired for a long time, but somebody I consider a friend and someone who was on like my initial list of uh, guests I wanted to have on the show. I'm talking about the great, legendary Jane Rosenthal, who, you know, honestly, Jane, if, if you had just like started Tribeca, that would have been, you would have like, oh, she found a Tribeca. But you're also um, one of the most successful movie producers. And you've, I mean, people always say one of the most successful female movie producers, and you might be the most successful, but... Kathy uh, Kennedy. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Uh, but you, there's no question that um, you are um, among the elite people who've been able to do this for um, a very long time, from A Bronx Tale to Wag the Dog to Analyze This to About a Boy, which is such a great movie, uh, to The Good Shepherd and um, Meet the Parents. And I could go uh, on and on. I mean, and, and also you produced the entire 9 for 9 uh, ESPN 30 for 30 series about Title IX, which... Um, contains some really great with ones. Robin Roberts. Uh, yes, along with Robin Roberts. Uh, I th- I'm starting to see part of the reason for your producing credit is you're great at sharing credit <laughs> with people for your producing uh, success. Um, you don't do a ton of like long-form interviews. Um, and so I thought it would be useful to start and, and give a little context for... Um, because now it's, very, it's much more common for there to be women in the role that you're in. But when you started, that wasn't the case at all, was it? No, there were very few. There were very few women either in executive positions uh, at the networks and studios. Although Marcy Carcy was in a position at uh, ABC in the seventies, yeah, there were very there were very few women. Um, I actually started with CBS Sports when I was still at NYU and was a production assistant on the NFL Today Show and Sports Spectacular. And I didn't realize there were no women. There were you had Joan Richmond, who was an executive producer who came out of news and had, you know, she produced the moonwalks. You know, right. you know, she was she was an extraordinary. Well, woman. it's hard to fake those things. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that exactly. really took no, a she, lot she, of skill you know, on her she, part. She, to, and then all, pre- a, then all of a sudden, she was doing uh, sports spectacular and the Pan-American games, and there were just a handful of us. Well, let's walk, walk, walk me through the path that got you to becoming a producer in the, in the beginning. Um, when, when you were, where'd you grow up? Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, went to Brown for two years during my junior and senior year of high school, but wanted to get out of Providence. I mean, it was the armpit city. And you this, went to college in uh, 11th grade? I, yeah, it was not because. How did you make that decision? I, I it was it was through a program through uh, a Title III program that uh, allowed uh, allowed high school kids if you had a certain score to be able to take college classes. So I took a number of classes at Brown. Had an amazing professor who, named Michael Silverman, who was uh, a film teacher. Or at Brown at the time it was semiotics, and he was absolutely extraordinary. And then it was time for me to really apply to apply to school. I wanted to stay and take more classes with Michael Silverman. And he said to me, get out of Providence. Oh, he, <laughs> he said, get out he of knew. Providence. He knew. So I ended up um, coming to New York, NYU um, film department. At the time, Hague Mnugian was uh, in charge of the film department. Uh, I was actually in Gallatin, but took all my courses in the film department, had Hig, Minugian, Nick Tanis, George Stoney. I mean, remarkable, remarkable professors had to watch Scorsese's sight and sound films. Were you studying film theory or were you studying filmmaking at the time? Uh, actually, I was studying film and television because... I actually wanted to study. I wanted to be an actress, but my parents wouldn't put me through school if I majored in acting. So I thought, okay, I'll trick them. I'll major in film and television, and I'll act in the student films. Did you? I, you know, I did once or twice, and there were really amazingly talented people at NYU in in theater and acting, and who were acting in student films, and decided I would be better behind the camera because I didn't like people saying no to me so many times. You didn't want to deal with the rejection. You didn't thought want to that's do. hilarious that you then thought, oh, I'll go into producing, and no one will reject me. <laughs> exactly. It's like nothing but rejection. And you know what? What can time. I say? When you're 18 years old, you believe a lot of things. So. But, so but I also I also believe that I had the ability to just 
plow through and do it. You mean by dint of your your willingness to like uh, your will and your willingness to work hard? My willingness to work hard, but to also to figure out problems. I loved figuring out all these problems of how we were going to shut down Washington Square Park and make sure that nobody was uh, coming or going so we could get that one shot of the arch because nobody has ever shot the arch. Ha ha ha. But you know. Oh, so that's really interesting. So right away when you started, when you were in high school before you went to Brown and studied semiotics, did you love film and TV? Like you wanted to be an actress? Did you say that to people? Well, I, I, no, I wanted to be. Well, I wanted to be an actress, but I also I loved politics. So yeah. I, I loved politics, and I was a page in the Rhode Island House of Representatives. You were um, the first woman to be able to be a page in the House, first right? High school woman. I was like, you know, I was a. You mean the first high schooler and the first woman? Yes, that was both. A, both. So it, tell that story because I think it's instructive. People ask what it takes to be a producer, and when I read and heard that story about you, I was like, gosh, that's what she was from the beginning. So how did you mount that case? How were you told no? Do you remember the series of events? It's a weird thing. It's actually my father who uh, was, uh, my mother always used to say he was a better husband than a father, but my father would always say, when I would go to ask him anything, he'd say, no. So before, good like, training. It, it was really good training. He'd say, I mean, I'd say, daddy, can I? He'd say, no. And I guess I never wanted to hear that anymore. So, so it how was did you hear kinda, it when you tried to be a page, when everyone else well, was, what so happened? So I had actually worked for... Um, I would work with this uh, amazing man named Frank Leach as uh, his daughter was a friend of mine. He became governor of Rhode Island. And Rhode Island, you can go northwest, east, south uh, in a day. And I was, quote, a Leach girl. And I went campaigning and handed out leaflets. And when uh, Governor Leach became governor, I said I wanted to be a page because I really wanted to learn the process. And he... Made like a page a, in the state house? A, a page in the state house in the Rhode Island State House, one of the largest unsupported domes in the, <laughs> that and that and uh, that and uh, the Vatican have. Uh, I think it's the Vatican. The largest unsupported, unsupported domes. domes. Okay, yes. good. You know, because Providence is a sister city, uh, city with Rome. With Rome, in case you didn't know that either, the five hills. Growing up in Providence, I know about Federal Hill because of the other great light from uh, Rhode Island, Michael Carrente. Yes, yes, and uh, they had uh, on Federal Hill when I was growing up. There was not a white dotted line down the middle of the street. It was red, white, and green. Also, when I was growing up at the time, if you wanted to figure out a good Italian restaurant to go to, you figured out well, you saw whatever was recently boarded up because it was a lot. Of- <laughs> Really? Yeah, you had Raymond Patriarca was uh, uh, yes. running the East Coast mob from the Adult Correctional Institution at the time. It was. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was really a fascinating thing. So you wanted to be a page, and and you applied, and they said, "Sorry, you're a girl," because you were 16 no, and a girl. It was. I, I was very fortunate at that stage because Frank Leach had become governor, and I had worked for him, and he knew my passion for for politics and for understanding the political process. So he had officially appointed me. You actually went to the governor and asked for an official appointment? Of course. It was my friend Judy's. He was my friend Judy's father, and I worked for him all summer. I actually wore this little leech girl uniform. It was red with little white stripes. And so, all right, you put yourself in the spot uh, to I, take yeah, advantage absolutely. of it. And then did you like doing that? I liked doing that, but at the time I realized that... Um, the representatives were making less money than the pages. And that it was watching the process at the time was very frustrating. And I remember thinking, okay, if I want to make a bigger impact, I'll do documentary films. So I actually thought that if I could make documentary films, this would, I could have a I could have a social impact. And, and that's I could what you thought you'd do with Brown? That's, that's what you thought, thought you'd do with Brown? No, that's what I thought I would do when I went to NYU. Ah, when and you left. When I left, and I thought, but I wanted to major in acting. You know, it was both. And what, you sure, know, you're you know, 18 years of, old, yeah. by the way. Of course, you, you'd have yeah. a, a lot of those thoughts. But yeah. then I'm interested when you started, uh, as you said, helping uh, your classmates make their films, it just made sense to you somehow, this I, this sort of both creative and logistic job of... Uh, but it was logical, it was common sense, and they didn't all have common sense. Right. So were. it was, it, you know, uh, so I, like, telling everybody what to do and trying to organize people. And uh, Danny Duchovny, David's uh, older brother, was in my class. We did a bunch of sight and sound films together. And did you start to think like, oh, I, I think I could 
do like I really like this. I want to do this as a career. I did think I wanted to do it, but I didn't know. But I was still in this track of how can I make a change through telling stories? How can I? How can? What can I do to change a lot of the things that were you were seeing in a system, whether it was civil rights, women's rights, education in general? What could I do? What What could I? How could I have an impact? I mean, at 18, it was, how could I have an impact on the world? I mean, and I was really, whether and so whether it was the stories that we were making, these sight and sound films, sure. or if I could make documentary films. And I had George Stoney as a documentary film teacher, and you'd like hang on. Of course. Every, you'd hang on every word. By the time I got out of NYU and thought I could go into documentary filmmaking, they were shutting down all the doc divisions at the news departments. It wasn't a place to make documentary films. So I ended up, because of uh, my contacts at CBS and the work that I'd been doing at CBS uh, for CBS Sports, I ended up getting a job as uh, associate producer of miniseries and television movies for CBS and they moved me to they moved me to uh, Los Angeles and you were like that was right out of college right my big negotiation at the time was I had to make my age uh, that was my negotiation yes in thousands of dollars I was 21 I got got $21,000 and they were going to move me which meant they moved my orange crates and my mattress that didn't even have a box spring or or, yeah there was not even there was no box spring or frame it was just a mattress if you say that there were no um, women that you really saw except these one or two was that daunting to you at all? Or did you just think, well, I'm in a different generation. I'm going to move forward. Like, how did you, um, how did you process that it. at the time? I didn't think about it. I, I, I did not think about it. It wasn't like I was walking around saying, okay, there were no women. I, now, when I was traveling with CBS Sports and I was traveling with Pat Summerall and Tom Brokaw and going to, and I was in a world that I look back at and think, Okay, this was... Yeah, how did I survive? Really, how did I survive? I mean... Could you you drink with those guys? Were you No, I was 18. It wasn't even legal. They would toss me out of the bar. I'd come in to try to get the rundown for the shows. And they were also so plowed and uh, I'm I would, sure and, and I, I, I mean I'm picturing I picture Summerall and like Tony Trabert in a bar somewhere oh uh, it was uh, Charles H. Milton III sure. or known as the gorilla and did I they remember, treat you okay it was I was fine I was this kid but you know when they'd get a little rowdy it could you know there were some things I look back at and you know, yeah, now you'd be finally. I mean, yeah. now you would um, react in a different. But but you were actually in an era where there wasn't even an avenue for you to sort of like tell anyone it, that shit was a problem, right? I, there was one situation where I did, you know, I did complain about two characters, but um, but generally, uh, but I was, you know, what I was having, I was having a blast. I was also, I I knew I had to take care of myself, you know, because I could travel with them anywhere in the, like the tri-state area, especially for the NBA for on weekends. When so you were doing the when first I was still at when I was still gig, at NYU gig. and working for CBS Sports. So uh, first time I went, I checked my luggage. And you know, that was like these guys were. They had their little duffels. They oh, were sure. like, they, go, were, they were. They were going. They left me at the airport. That was the last time I have ever ever checked luggage. Yeah, can't I check can't check luggage. luggage ever. Hey, we will be back uh, with our conversation with Jane Rosenthal in a minute. As a small business owner, you work endless hours to pursue your goals. The sun rises your alarm clock. Your lunch hour is eight minutes long. You need employees that work hard too. Monster has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right jobs. Monster builds custom hiring solutions specific to your small business. Visit monster.com slash hiring for a limited time offer and to find employees who work as hard as you. Monster. Find better. So when you went to LA, you're still not doing really creative work at the at that time, are you? Or was it creative? Was it satisfying? These sort of dual things of wanting to tell meaningful stories and dealing with the brass tacks of how to do it. Well, one of the first one of the pr- first projects I ended up working on as a mini series, and this goes back to days when you um, had three television networks and Fox was you know a glimmer in right. Mr. Diller's eyes, uh, was a television movie with Lee Remick called The Woman's Room that Marilyn French wrote, and that was about 
you know, shit and string beans and how are you going to manage shit and string beans and still be sexy for your husband? And it was, you know, but that was a seminal book at that time. And to be able to work on that and realize that there were so many women who were not empowered that did not have a voice. Um, I mean, clearly, I real clearly. Did I you find the book, or someone found? Like, did it you? It was actually already in development. The one book that I did um, that I did find, and I was completely obsessed with it, was *The Burning Bed*. And I had bought that for CBS. What obsessed me about that book was not that it was a story about domestic violence. It was that it was a justifiable homicide. And I was fascinated with the fact that how could any homicide ever be justifiable? And then when you read the story of Francine Hughes... You felt it was. You felt, you felt it was. And when we had developed, we had developed the script... Uh, a writer named Rose Goldenberg uh, did um, the first drafts of the script, and she was very much uh, about the domestic violence angle of it, which is what the movie is uh, is very much about. Who starred and, in the movie? Uh, that was Farrah Fawcett. CBS ultimately didn't put it on the air. Brendan Tartikoff put it on the air. And Even though you made it. We, deve- we developed it, wrote the script, but I could not get anybody at CBS to to make the movie. Uh, first they said, well, if Farrah goes on, they were airing her movie Sunburn, and if it had a rating of 22 or 23, I mean, numbers that today well, you look can't right, even you, can't even, you can't even fathom it, but that would, would have been a good number for, a good share for Farrah Fawcett. They would, they would make it, and then it only did a 20, and so they decided they weren't going to, they weren't going to make it. Uh, John Avnet and Steve Tisch ended up taking that and making it at NBC. NBC. Brandon Tartikoff put it on the air. It's so interesting watching you talk about this because this is 30 years ago and more, and it's still so alive to you. Like that you couldn't get it made is really frustrating. Well, By, it, because of uh, one uh, one person, okay. one point in the ratings, a TV awesome. movie after all But the this TV stuff. movies were making, okay, I had TV movies that were on the air that got 30 shares, 35 shares. Okay, so you had a big impact with television movies. Also, it was during acute programming failure for CBS. And whenever they had programming failure, they throw on a television movie. So in a course of five years, I made 70, I oversaw 70 television Television movies. Wow. I covered every social issue, disease of the week. Whenever I was really trying to get something through, because you still had to do certain testing, I would put seduction, miracle, because miracle always did well. If you put right. anything, could be there was this one movie with Lynn Redgrave that was the little book was called Bliss. It was this sweet little movie of a of a school mom. I mean, and how are we going to get it? To get any kind of rating, we called it the seduction of Miss Leona. Oh, so you would just you would you would make your oh, mission I, was like to make the stories you wanted to tell, and then you would also figure out how can I um, spin it so that it seems like maybe something it's not, but now, something that's compelling. And now at the time you're looking for okay, what's the ad and TV guide going to look like? Okay, you're not looking. It's not like today that we're sitting here on a podcast that we're you know very. You know, there were very few. Uh, oh, uh, sure. It, the uh, channels of distribution, not only there, were there a few channels, but the, the marketing was very sort of primitive and hit you over the head and direct. And we all were looking at basically the same materials. Right. You had you had appointment TV, you knew, and you had the nightly news. and Yeah, the world it, was really different. And did it remain, you, this is in your 20s, right, that mm-hmm. you're doing this work. and But you're not producing, you're overseeing it, you're putting the pieces together. And would you notice, like, when did it start becoming unsatisfying to you? Like, well, first of all, the way you're talking about this stuff, you were obviously a producer, and, and people often ask about what it takes. And I, I think I'm so glad we're having this conversation because with microphones, because like every word you say is like the way a producer looks at things, which is like with this urgency and then this doggedness and then the creative problem solving. So at 20-something, when I'm working for CBS, and clearly they wanted that younger demographic, which is why they had hired me at that time, I felt that if I was going to develop something, I had to just love it. I remember Leonard Goldberg being 
upset with me and complaining to the head of the network. He's the guy who made Charlie's Angels, just so people know. And he still has television shows on the air. And he's Leonard. Leonard is wonderful. But at the time, I was this, you know, 20-something-year-old. And he came, he had to come in and pitch to me. And he wanted to do, you know, sorority cheerleaders. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I was... I didn't want what to do that. What was your mission in your like? What was your like secretly? What was your mission in the job? It went back to making stories that could be entertaining, but have a, have a message or be. And again, it was I covered every major issue. So you know, but that ever, was conscious. It you, was very you were conscious still, of so what I was. So it was a way to, to not rationalize or justify to yourself, but it was a way to satisfy this dual need you had to be success. Obviously, to be successful and recognized for being mm. as smart as you are, like to prove to yourself you were. But then you sort of needed to deliver the vitamins to people too somehow. Yeah. What then happened that made you decide it wasn't, what part of it became tiresome where you felt like you needed something else? Was there a limit on your advancement? Um, no, I never felt there was a limit on my advancement. There became a limit of how deeply I could go into issues. And it, it probably was the burning bed when I went in and sat with my then boss and and truth is, I wore a silk shirt and with a little button down. And I knew that... On purpose? You were working absolutely. it? Absolutely. I was going to so work it. I was going to work it. I was going to work it. I needed a yes. Right. I needed a yes. And I'm sitting there with my silk shirt, and I know exactly where he's looking. Wow. Hello. And he's looking at this. And I'm going on about why, you know, we should make the burning bed, and it's, you know, justifiable homicide, and this. And, and he looked at me, and he said, Janie... Why does anybody care about a man who beat up his wife? And I was over. I mean, it was, it was, I wanted out. And I just, I remember looking at him and getting up and saying, I think one day you'll be sorry you said that to me. You said that to him? Of course. I mean, I always had this attitude that I was going to, whatever somebody, whatever I was going to say behind somebody's back, I was going to say it to their face because I never wanted them to think that I was talking behind their back. You know, I probably got, I probably, it probably came out of my mouth and... Yeah, before you even knew it. And did he, I mean, how did the guy respond? Did he try to laugh it off? Did he fire you? No, I wasn't, no, I wasn't fired. I, I did end up looking, I started looking for a job. I wanted to be able to delve deeper into stories and to be able to oversee less movies. Uh, I then went to work for... Uh, Frank Price at Universal. Uh, Sean Daniels was there. It was a great. It was Universal actually, Television Studio. Univer- or Universal, no, Universal Films. Universal Features, and Universal Films. As a development person. As a VP of development, and I think the first thing they assigned me to because I had come out of television was like Jaws Five. Right. Anyway, I lasted there for about ten months and um, ended up. Um, was asked to go because I had a background in now film and television. I went to work for Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner when they first went from Paramount to, to Disney. Disney in those early days of of Disney. And very quickly, I ended up working on a couple of movies, uh, and one of them was The Color of Money. Met Scorsese. They sent me to Chicago to deal with some budget issues with Marty and... Um, I remember Marty not um, really trying, not really paying attention to me, and I turned to him and said, "You know, I had Hagmanugian for a teacher too." Oh, and what you did? I, I did. And so he looked at me and he said, "You had Hag." I said, "Yeah, and I had to watch your sight and sound films." He said, "Hag was like a father to me. I slept on Hag's couches." Boom! Right there, he's like, "Here's the chair. Come sit with me. Here's the monitor." I was sitting between Marty and Michael Bauhaus, wow, and then the sitting, yeah. then I then in dailies, he, I was sitting between Marty and Thelma Schoonmaker, the, the amazing, editor. Yeah, amazing, one of the best amazing editor. Who ever lived. Yeah. And he was saying, okay, here's what I was doing with the Luma Green shot. Here's like, okay, now this is why I want to go with this take versus that take, and it was. I, I never well, that's, wanted to uh, leave. Beyond, that's like a mass, you know, beyond what you got in film school. Oh. I mean, that's the most incredible film education you can imagine. Beyond. And so you were there, Richard Price, like all of you, you were in the middle of the making mm-hmm. of that movie. Got the, to watch I, it. I was the VP of uh, production. Yeah, you were the creative exec on, yeah. the, on the film. And then Marty at one point said, what are you doing as a studio executive? You should meet my friend Bob De Niro. He's thinking of starting something. Uh, and I ended up meeting Bob, who was doing... 
midnight run at the time. And we talked on and off for about a year and then moved to New York August 89. And here I am. It's interesting. You know, so many people, it seems like they try to plan and calculate these specifics, you know, uh, but it does, it seems like you had a mission that was about the kind of work you wanted to do, but the, the job titles weren't in your head. No, they were never in my head, but there was always, you know, there was always some, there was always some catalyst of change, which was either the breakup with a boyfriend or something. You mean something <laughs> would happen was, in your, per- in your life. Something would happen in my personal life, and that was probably what led to me, like, saying, okay, fuck it, can I say that Yeah, on you can podcast? say whatever the hell you yeah, want. Of course, of course so you can. I was like, so I, it was to be like, okay, fuck it, next, you know, um... And you would just move on. Yeah. And did were you able to, at the time, what was the, because you and Bob have obviously been in all the work, like your sense of philanthropy and your sense of mission is really clear, but how clear was the articulation of it at the beginning? Or was it just like, hey, we're going to try to make a couple of movies? And I mean, I've been in rooms with Bob a lot, like a bunch of times, so I know the idea of him even articulating a mission is hilarious, but how much of that was there? I mean, I've been in rooms with Bob because you put me in those rooms a few times. But like how, what? It would be, so I'm thinking I'm going to get this building and like we could do a thing. I want to have a restaurant. So we go off about a restaurant at the bottom of the building. And uh, I'd come to New York to visit him to talk about movies. And we had a bunch of mutual friends in common. And uh, he'd be wanting to go look at buildings in Tribeca, and we'd walk around and look at buildings. And then I, I said to him at one point, you know, you should get your building done. And then when you get your production company up and going, I'll, I'll come in. But I couldn't, I didn't want to leave L.A. because, again, 87, 88, you weren't on, there were just about faxes, you know, you were talking about, you were, right. there were just about People were just about faxing at that point. You certainly weren't. No, the New York sort of independent cinema thing. I mean, there were people like Soderbergh. Soon thereafter, made sexless videotape was right. Right after that, but the heartbeat, the decision makers, yes, the industry. Yes, and then Jarmusch was doing his thing. But yes, but the industry was in. LA. There had been shifts where the industry would go back and forth, but the industry itself, the decision makers, were in LA. And I was very nervous that if I left and did this thing with this quirky macho actor, that I was going to fall off the face what of the earth. What made you leap? So what made you leap? Well, it was uh, it was a breakup with a boyfriend, but no, yeah, it, sure. uh, but it was. It was. I remember talking to Bob, and he said, and I told him, he said, "What do you want to do? Be a studio executive for the rest of your life?" And it was true. He said, "Studio executive." It sounded so awful. I said, "Okay, let me think about it." And I went away for the weekend to bunch palms, (laughs) and wrote this list of pros, cons, and intangibles. That's great, really. Yeah, and I have to find this list. Yeah, you really should find it. It was the pros. It was about trusting my own instinct, and the the pros outweighed the cons. And at the end of the day, it was the intangibles would be intangibles my whole life. Like I couldn't guarantee anything. Who could guarantee? So, at the end of the day, it was what is the worst that was going to happen to me. I was going to have to move back from New York to L.A. and be a studio executive. I'd be able to get a gig again. Right. So I took a gamble. I had, you know, I rented my house. I put my car in storage, and I took my two little mutts, and I moved to Tribeca. And and But the problem is, is that when I moved to Tribeca, there was... There was no Tribeca. It was, it was still the Triangle Below Canal, but nobody knew it. When I tell friends I had moved to Tribeca, they say, I thought you moved to New York. Right. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's above the but, World Trade but Center. But did you know the kind of movies you were going to try to make or what the grand... What, was there um, a plan or that you were going to try to combine it with this... Um, 
uh, approach to a kind of urban development? I mean, was that all? No, we wanted an office. We just wanted an office. We didn't want to go uptown. We had an overall. We had an overall deal with TriStar. We didn't want to be on Fifth Avenue in you know, one of these office buildings on Fifth Avenue. We did want to create a center where creative people could come and hang out. And I remember when we were doing this building, here I thought I was going to, you know, be talking to writers and, you know, which I, I, I did. I Clearly we were developing that, yeah. projects, but I was also talking to architects and construction managers. And we had purchased the, Bob had purchased the Martinson Coffee Building, which is the Tribeca Film Center. And it was the old, you know, it's where they used to roast the coffee. And there wasn't a lot of light in the building. So Bob wanted to put a skylight in and we, you know, a two-story skylight. The real estate people, when they heard that we had done that, were furious because you were never going. We were never going to get our rent. You know, we were because we were going to rent a this lot. This is before the building. Bob, Bob and Harvey hadn't moved into that. No, no, Bob place and Harvey. We ended up selling a floor because it's commercial condominium to Bob and Harvey, and then to Spielberg. Uh, I'm saying that with Bob and Harvey. That was Miramax. It was in the Miramax, beginning. and then also Spielberg uh, had a floor. So then it became this New York hub right. of. And we put a restaurant on the ground floor. No, I know of the movie business. Um, but we, but that I wasn't was a, the intention no, in the beginning. It was I, it was just a place so that we could then have our own office and then. And did and, you know Bob had this idea for this movie? I mean, that chat like that he was going to go direct a movie. Well, and, we knew he wanted to direct a movie. We hadn't found a Bronx Tale yet. Uh, actually, um, uh, Dan Harvey, who's been Bob's trainer for years, had mentioned he had heard about this one man show that was playing in. The Valley. Because this movie is the thing that first, like, that was the first big thing you guys well, did. Well, no, actually, the first movie we first. did, the first movie we did was a movie called Thunderheart, loosely based on the Leonard Peltier story right. that John Fusco wrote yes. with um, uh, no, no, Graham Greene. and the first and, big thing oh, you guys well, did. But no, but you go back <laughs> just, to social impact or what yes, you were trying to do yes, and that, and Leonard Peltier is still in prison. No, of course. And that was, you know, very much a story about... My, yes, my uh, friends in the band Toad the Wet Sprocket have a great okay. song about Peltier that I, I could sing uh-huh. to you if I had okay. a good voice. Really? So, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, but that was, I mean, yeah. that was the first movie that we'll our put urban... put that song in the show notes, but our, yeah. Our urban production company was going to do a movie about... And so that felt like it was a combination of these missions that you had. Well, I don't know if we had a mission, no, but I know that... personally, James I, Me mission. personally, and also that we were doing this production company and we weren't going to be just doing... Bob De Niro film, so we're going to do other... Oh, so that was important to you, to yeah. do a first movie that, that Bob wasn't directing and wasn't right. in. Because anytime anybody said, oh, I have something that's perfect for you, it was usually some gritty urban drama with a serial killer at the center, and it was going to be very difficult to get made. Right. And then, uh, so how did Bron- so Bronx Tale, this trainer, said this thing? So then we ended up... Uh, we ended up optioning it and um, went through a whole process. Chaz, uh, you know, was uh, insistent that he play the role of Sonny, and Bob backed him up on that. And was 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 Thunderheart the first movie I, that you were? Just go back to it. You were fully a producer on. Yes, and but so thank that, God I had Michael Nozick. Do you know Michael Nozick? I don't. Was he your line producer? Yes, he was my line producer, and we ended up both living on the in the uh, Ponderosa uh, trailer park because we were right outside the... Awesome. We were at Kadoka, South Dakota, which means hole in the wall in Lakota. Yeah, big glamorous, loca- no, glamorous yes. locations. And was it as when you started doing that, so you'd uh, uh, done all these other things and then now you're back to the thing at, at college that you liked, did you enjoy, like, did it work for you right away? Did you know how to do it? Did it make sense? Was it harder than you thought it would be? It's always harder than you think it is. It's, it's always harder, and certainly budgets and people's money in studios and everybody's opinions. And then I remember, you know, getting into getting into Kadoka and Val Kilmer uh, played the FBI agent, and Val had rewritten the script. So how'd you handle it? I sat with Val, and the and it was I, it was and the director and the and the director Michael Apted was the director. So you had a real director, someone a, who made many important movies. You had him. I had him. I had Michael. Look, the best part, the the, the 
you always want to surround yourself with people who are much smarter than you and who are people sure. who are better than you. And if a producer really does their job well, you shouldn't have to be on location because you've hired everybody to do, you know, to do their jobs. And but, uh, but to to what happens, Val Kilmer, who's uh, he just m- finished mercurial. the door. He had finished right. the door. Working with Oliver Stone, he was big. This was sort of like one of. He's had a couple of these moments where he mm-hmm. was a huge star, but he was a huge star in huge. this moment. And so, how did you? Because pe- there's another thing that people are interested in. You know, how did you manage and finesse that to get him to show up the first day of shooting and shoot the script that you felt should be shot? Was it listening? Was it cajoling? Like, what'd you do? It was listening. It was cajoling. It was between John Fusco coming out and talking about the real Peltier. And we also had uh, John Trudell was around, and John was in it. But John had uh, been very much a part of the AIM movement. He just passed away. Um, I mean, were you? was your posture, though, um, because people... It's a challenging thing, right, when, when an actor wants to hijack a picture which i'm sure you've lived through that a few Mm -hmm. times is your way of dealing with it the same now as it was then are you more direct were you worried about being direct like how do you what would your advice be to some kid who's trying to get a movie off the ground and the movie star shows up and then how do you manage to be direct because ultimately if you're not you end up making something that you don't want to do and it's really just as hard to do something that you want to do as opposed to doing what you don't want. They're, they're equally hard. And, right. You mean making the one you don't want to do, you're going to work as hard and then you're going to end up with something that you can't go and say, I love this. Right. And when that happens, I mean, and it's just as producers, as producers, as people, as writers, as, you know, directors, even more so, but you got to love it and you've got to be passionate about it. And it's till death to your part. I mean, we worked on a project and how many times did, I mean, you know, that the story of our project together is actually almost a more interesting story of oh, a heartbreaking, a, a heartbreaking thing, yeah. story about the ups and downs and the crazies with all. No, no. I mean, but, listen, but I'll just say for, for Dave and me, obviously, that was, um, I've talked about it on here before, and I actually, uh, you know, Dave and I uh, wrote a, a, a screenplay based on um, the great Don Winslow novel, The Winter of Frankie Machine, and Jane had said at the beginning of this, if you guys do your job, I think I can get Bob and Marty to do this thing, this movie, and when we finished the script, Bob and Marty, for a brief moment, said that they would do it, and we got to have meetings and work with them, and then we don't won't go into it, but it fell apart. Yeah, one of the crushing, one of the greatest moments of my life was walking into that office and there, Bob and Marty uh, with uh, Dave and me and you. That was incredible. But, um, you know, that falling apart was was devastating. We tried really hard. We really tried. And I still have faith, by the way, that that's going to come back around someday uh, because it's a great project. But the point of all of that is that yes. you have to believe when you're putting, as a as a producer, you're not at a studio. You're not, you know, you're not having to produce content where if there is no Christmas movie coming from Tribeca, nobody's going to cry. Right. So I've got to be passionate about what I'm doing. I have to believe in what it is that I'm doing. And when did you figure that out along the way? When I said yes to certain things and have found myself working on, when I found myself not wanting to get up in the morning, right. I mean. So you've taken lessons from, you You make, do you have a practice by which you check in with yourself? Like, do you, how do you. I have teenage daughters. I can't check right. in with myself. I mean, I, you can't, teen, no, but teenagers, how do you, you can't check in with anybody but them. But how do you then sort of like learn, you know, most people live unaware sort of but right so how do you take actual like um most of us have such a hard time learning the lessons until it's too late no but i think where you do have to learn are from your failures and i think the your failures in in a lot of ways speak more to who you are and what you do and how you've done it than sometimes your successes because your successes can be luck and timing so can your failures Look, sometimes you're trying to get a movie made, you're trying to get something to go, you're going to put whatever, you know, warm body is there and somebody's going to say yes and give you give you the money to for go it. Make and, then, the movie. and go make the movie. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and, uh, you know, you're doing some animated project and you find out you're working with a colorblind person. It's right. <laughs> no, it's a disaster. So you tried to learn those lessons. I, w- I do want to go back to the Bronx Tale thing because... 
you found out about it and then had Bob seen it yet or did you go see it with him? Um, Bob hadn't seen it. Um, he might have seen it when it was in New York, but he loved the story. He read the play and then we did a reading and you know he loved what it was he loved what it was about. And when you were making it, I remember when it came out, it it didn't like immediately do as well. Did you know that it was really a good, like that it would have the life that it had then after, where it's become such an important movie for people, such a touchstone for people? No. And so influential? Um, no, it was, I remember one of our first previews when people were laughing, because it's funny. Yeah, There's it's like really, really funny. It's really funny, but, you know. It's the first half of it's really fun. I mean, there are really funny moments throughout. Obviously, it builds to a, a tragic, um, you know, there's heavy tragedy involved along the way. But the life lessons in it are really important. And even the line, you know, uh, that the father says, but the saddest thing in life wasted is talent. wasted talent. And, you know, I think I've always held, held on, on to, that. to that, that, that line. And there's also another line about, I learned something from these two men. So even, even, the, even the Sonny, who was a less, you know, who was a bad guy, there was still a lot to learn from Sonny. And, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the themes today, the themes of that movie still resonate, the work, you know, so many of the issues that we're dealing with in the political. As you were making it, did you feel like you were, I always want to know if people feel like they're doing something special when they're doing the special thing. Or were you, t- like, did you know it was no, special? The first day, first day, I, um, First day we were shooting, we were three days behind. Right. And so you were Bob. focused on that. I was focused How do I deliver that. the resources and keep the studio the off Bob's com- back and let him make his it wasn't, it, We had a bond company, and the bond company was, like, crawling down our back. And so a bond company is who guarantees that the movie will get made for the financiers. And so you're, the reason one is scared of them is they act like um, an insurance company with machine guns at your back. Right. They were going to come, and they could t- come and take over the movie. And that was... Um, I just remember standing on set, and I must have had, like, you know, I had this look on my face, and Bob was like, get out of here if you're going to have that face go Oh, you mean like, you had the worried producer look? I had the worried producer look. He didn't, he had the worried producer look. He didn't like that I was standing around on set with the worried producer look. Right, so you didn't have time to really think about the fact that it was like uh, he's getting these magical no. performances out of these people and but, creating this atmosphere. No, we knew it was special. I mean, we knew it was special, but I don't think we had a clue of, look, you're working with Bob De Niro in his first acting and directing. first directing uh, gig. I knew that was special. And to me, it was also, okay, we started this company. It's like within the first five years, because you go back and you said to me, did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah, we really did have a, a plan for the first five years. It was the second five years I wasn't too sure of it. Um, and then everything else that's come after has been kind of a Well, yeah, surprise. well, skip ahead, although, you know, I'm looking at the IMDb and the fact that you made Wag the Dog, which is like one of the great political movies ever so uh, relevant right now in terms of what we watch versus what we ought to be watching and what we think about and just people should go watch that's another one of those movies that like wasn't a huge hit but everybody i know everyone in our business like knows that movie by heart Mm -hmm. basically and so it ended up being important and the screenplay got nominated so you kept nominated for an academy award um as uh well as a golden globe and Writers Guild. So when did when did you start thinking about um, more actively manifesting? You know, you started making these big hit movies. Then analyze this, and then Fokker. You started making meet movies. Meet the parents. Yeah, meet the parents. Yeah. The first one. Yeah. Well, the second one was big hit too. But Meet the Parents is very much about you know the, your universal themes, and you go back to yes. like those. It does have themes of the Judeo-Christian ethic and those universal things and stuff that we all can stuff that we all can laugh right. about. Well, you know, one of my, I mean, you know, one of my favorite people in the world wrote that movie. So, I mean, Hamburg is like uh, I really one of my favorite people. So, it's one of mine too. Yeah, nobody could be happier about it. In fact, I was sitting with Hamburg at lunch one day when uh, you had, like you had just asked him to like partner on the last movie. So I'm. <laughs> I remember him being like, oh, no, I think I have to do it. I, we were, Bob asked, I think I have to help. But um, so I, I distinctly remember that. But at what point did, because like so much of your life in the last bunch of years, like anyone here in this city of New York understands how involved you are in in so many important philanthropic political 
issues, how involved you've been with Hillary for a very long time. The Title IX thing, I mean, that's a really big deal that you did that. And even as you sit here and say, well, I didn't feel judged as being a woman, you've certainly done plenty of things to make the road easier for women who come, who've come after you. So, well, I, I, didn't say, I didn't say that I never was lonely. Ah. Okay. I didn't say that I never felt that there wasn't, I didn't have a certain kind of companionship and that I didn't feel like, you know, all the guys would go out afterwards or even the men's room conversation. I mean, I, you just, you know, you, you did, I did feel... You did feel slightly alienated. Yeah, I, I did feel slightly alienated. And which probably made it easier to move to New York and do this with Bob in some ways because I had felt alienated. But um, look, the one thing about our business and the stories that we can tell is we tell stories about people who are alienated. We tell people uh, we tell stories about people who are different. We try to tell stories all the time that uh, you know look at our our differences and uh, and our similarities and. You know, that's what we're so lucky to to be able to do. That you're really good at... So we just talked about Winter of Frankie Machine and the fact that that movie didn't get made, even though we had a couple of tries at it. But I look at the... Oh, we were so close. uh, We were so close. That's too painful for me. It's brutal. It's so good, too. It really should get made. Those two guys should decide to do it. And it would have been a good soundtrack, too. It really... Yes, it would have. The whole thing would have been fantastic. But I look at the Madoff movie that you just got made, and I'm, I'm wondering about how... Um, your inner resources of sort of like stick to because the Madoff movie should have fallen apart a bunch of time. It took so long for you to get it, I guess, right at a script level and then put the elements together and you finally got the thing made. And then a competing movie comes out before. What is your like version of, and, and don't just say like, well, you got to keep moving forward because like, obviously you have some sort of philosophy about that, that uh, and is your driver. Like, because when people start, when the nose hit that heavy, it's really easy, not, and not only to give up, but you have a lot of other stuff to do. Like, wh- what makes you keep going? Like, how do you go, I'm going to get this movie made, I'm going to solve it? What, what is that? I don't know, just be stubbornness. And uh, it, look, it doesn't mean you don't get to... Pre- the highs and lows of our business yeah. are so intense. Are so intense. But the highs are so, I mean... The highs are so great, and the fact that I am so lucky to work on so many different projects and be able to, you know, I've been able to do some documentary films with the artist JR, and that's been, you know, incredibly uh, satisfying. And there are, so, you know, you can get depressed about something over here, and then I can go on and do, you know, yeah. I, I, I can uh, multi, multitask. But I guess the is, what do you do to keep so, because our business is so much, so often about like um, the new and the next thing, right? And because nobody wants to be around something that feels like it's not going to happen. We, I want, like, like using the made-up thing as an example, like what strategies did you employ to keep people willing to want to keep going? Like how did you continue to add, oh, uh, new bits of excitement? For well, that. on that one, very, you know, Lynn Amato, who runs uh, movies at HBO, and had actually been a reader for me when I first started. Uh, okay, yes, uh, our relationship was important. And, yeah. uh, then was our story editor. Then he actually worked with Paula Weinstein on Analyze This, and we'd all made Analyze This together. Uh, and Lynn, Lynn believed in it. And he kept pushing. So it's really, when you have that kind of a partner in a studio executive to push it with you, that's, you can't ask for more. Well, that goes back to the decision you made at the beginning of the project, I guess, which was to get in business with HBO and Len and make this with Bob. We had optioned that book, Diana Henrique's book, Wizard of Lies. And we had the opportunity to do it as an independent movie. And Bob is a brilliant Madoff. Um, his performance, quite extraordinary. And when, remember, we sat there and talked, said, okay, if we do this as an independent movie, it might fall apart. I don't know where we're going to get the money from. I don't know wh- who's financing, etc. And, you know, 
a fraction of the people will see it than if I can actually do a successful HBO movie. And um, that's what we, you know, knock on wood or something. Uh, we'll see how everybody responds to it. But it's, it's yeah, but you pretty, finished. I mean, you've made the movie. We made now. the movie. We made the movie. Uh, it's uh, and it's, it's obviously finished. a movie that has real import in this time, right? Because the lessons of that film, I think, are still super resonant. Well, it's the you know what really strikes. It's it's interesting because when you say okay, this took you so long. I think that had we made it originally, when if if we had made this originally, um, it would have been a much different movie. The than, reason you hear the buzzing is James, like a hugely important um, movie no, producer. I, I know it has nothing. So to that, do with that's that. it. It's, it's gonna buzz. Look, the phone's gonna buzz. You're, uh, you're it's, you it's, have it's Tribeca Film Festival. I starting in like five that's days. That's what I'm saying. Like, I understand. I, like it's a little nutty. It's, it's fine. Like, it's nutty. I'm just explaining like, it. You should have had a cocktail here instead of just water, bro. Uh, I could give it to you in an IV. You want an IV? We could bring an IV in. You have the IV drip. We could bring the IV doctor here. Yeah, sure. I bet. No problem. Um, We'll get him right over. But uh, yes, no. So the point is, so the point is that it's actually it's actually interesting to have perspective when you have to work on something for so long. So had we made the Madoff movie originally, yeah, it would have been very much about the Ponzi scheme and about. Not that it isn't about that, but it would have been very much about the the Ponzi scheme, um, the sort of sensationalistic thing aspects, right in the shadow. Right, thank of you, it. all of that stuff. Yeah. What has what is the movie that we made is very much a story of a family that has fallen apart. That what happens to these two boys? Forget their guilt or innocent, but what happens yes. to two? guys who turn around and have to turn their father in and then have to, then one turns around and says okay what do I tell my kids that the father that taught me right from wrong the father that taught me good from bad how can I believe him I can't believe anything that he says so suddenly this movie really became about this family in a way that I never envisioned it to be Early on, when we had optioned it, it got and deeper. It for got you. deeper, and it's a, a more powerful story. And I mean, the Madoff story is—I mean, it's no. But I'm excited. It, it, I mean, I'm excited it, it, about it, Nathan pers- Darrow's in Billions, and he's, he's wonderful. He plays one of the two brothers, yes. and I know that he's a he's really Andy, incredibly open and sensitive um, actor. So I'm sure the scenes that he would play with, but he would come and say sometimes like that he got to play scene with Bob and how, what an incredible experience that was. And we only have, uh, I know, a, a few more minutes, and I want to cover two other things. I really want to cover Tribeca, and I want to talk about, which is starting right now. I mean, this thing will be up right as Tribeca is about to start, is starting. So, uh, you know, what has, I mean, I know what it's done for the city. It's been an incredible thing for the city and for the movie business to have an, an, a New York uh, festival like this. What has it meant to you, and, and what does it mean to you now? to do it can yeah, you separate yeah. yourself from like the work you have to do to 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 pull it off um at this moment probably yes because i get a little you know I, I actually get a little emotional about it you because should, it is, yeah. um, because you know we we did that we announced we were doing the first festival in november 2001 just as citizens what could we do to help our community what could we do to give people a new memory talk about how movies can change your mind but or make you laugh and that's what we were trying to do and then we pulled off the first festival in 120 days and Nelson Mandela came and spoke and Bill Clinton came and spoke because you just couldn't start a film festival like you were still you yeah were, well it was just in the shot it was in just the, in the aftermath we, of 9-11 clearly yeah. it was um, yeah it was April 2002 and um, I, had film, we had a, I had a film in the first Tribeca Film Festival. So uh, Neil Berger's first film, Interview with the Assassin. Oh, right, of course. And I remember it was at that theater, the multiplex, the one theater. Well, we went into that theater. The first time we went into that theater, uh, we were in hazmat suits. Right. Wow. It, now the buildings are open, Greenwich Street's open, the memorial's been built, the museum has been built. And there's a community of filmmakers, and we have over 20 returning filmmakers this year, people that are coming back with their second movie, their third movie. We have filmmakers who have done shorts that are coming back with their first features. And it's this 
incredible community of of filmmakers, of storytellers that has been built, and it's um, it, it's pretty. I, I, mean, I, I mean, start I feel to sound as a New Yorker and as a filmmaker because I've had a few films in the festival and come back, and you do feel a tremendous sense of involvement and pride and um, connection. But as a New Yorker, you just feel like this was an incredible gift that that um, you and Bob. It's gave it's the also city. it's also when you look at it. Um, People say, "What's the big? What's the biggest difference?" Well, the first year, the first festival, I could hold my youngest daughter in my. I could hold my youngest daughter in my arms. She was uh, three and a half. Now she's six three. So awesome. <laughs> like, what? What? What is the sense of responsibility, though, that you continue to feel as uh, a person in your position, someone who's, you know, been this successful for this long a time, who who has. Uh, a really big and important platform um, as uh, someone who's, you know, uh, helps great artists and works in the arts, but but also, uh, you know, uh, is very civic-minded. I mean, how do you think about the utility of the, the use of your time now in terms of, like, is it making movies versus doing good? Is it intermingled? Like, how do you sort of think about it on a day-to-day basis? Well, um, I'm, I'm clearly more selective about what I want to spend my time on and how I want to spend my time and the people that are involved. And uh, that becomes more and more important to me um, by who I surround myself with. And the other is that I do feel the necessity as a woman, a mother with two daughters to support the generation of women and Women filmmakers, as you know, Hillary Clinton has said, if the 20th century was about civil rights, the 21st century is about women right, women's rights. And you look at uh, the abuses uh, and inequities of women globally, and I feel that that's something that I personally want to spend my time on. Yes. And those are the stories I want to be able to tell. I was very proud. Uh, that we had the opportunity to screen play, play the Devil Back to Hell, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, a documentary uh, about this woman, Lima Goma, uh, who won the um, Nobel Peace Prize, getting the warlords to sit down and talk in Liberia and the work she continues to do with women in the Congo and all over the world. You're getting uh, great coverage. I mean, I read about it today. So that's great. Yeah. Um, and um, you brought up Hillary. Uh, what do you think, you know, as somebody who obviously knows her quite well and has worked tirelessly for her, what, what do you think people miss about her who only see the public, Hillary Clinton? What is it, other than her being a woman, that makes her so, can t- continue to be so animating to you? Why do you believe so strongly? Hillary has spent her entire life fighting for supporting advocating childhood mental illness and supporting um, supporting supporting women and girls and people forget that she was doing that before she was Mrs. Clinton yes and uh, continued to do that as First Lady of Arkansas and continued has continued to do that and for uh, what she has done w- within health care and she's really an extraordinary woman who is so passionate and sometimes that passion doesn't come out the well, same yeah, way that some of you know it, it, the same way but she is but behind when you're fear, with her she's passionate she's fearless and um there is no one better to lead our country the person that you see behind when you're w- with her is uh, this is what i want to know and because i look uh and I'll just declare, like, I'm a supporter of Hillary Clinton. I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton um, uh, in New the York. 19th, I'm going to vote for her uh, here in New York, and I'm going to vote for her in the general, too. And, okay. I'm, I, you know, if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, I'll vote for Bernie Sanders, clearly. But I'm a Hillary. I, 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 as an outsider, believe in it. But what do you see in her as a person? Um, because, I mean, I know you for a long time, and I know if she were this manipulative, lying person, the way that she's portrayed, even sometimes by people in her own party, you wouldn't be behind her. So what is it that people who don't have the opportunity to spend time with her don't know about her that so, you know? So um, 
one of my um, dear friends who passed away about 10 years ago, Wendy Wasserstein. Of course. Wendy used to say that you can really tell the soul and you can really tell who a woman is by how long she keeps her girlfriends. Right. And you look at Hillary Clinton and you see her friends that she grew up with. You see her college roommates. You see... She has she does, she has loyal friends because she is a good friend, and you, you don't fake that. I mean that's that's real. Um, and I'm not the kind of friend. I mean we're friendly. I no, mean, I understand. You're not one of those. You're not on the. I know. I understand. Yeah, I'm no, not, that you're saying you're on the. You're saying what you noticed is when you notice that somebody who you can tell more about somebody, but how long they keep their friends and great answer. That's the testament. That's the mark of a of a of a really great person. That's a great answer because it tells us a lot about Hillary Clinton, and it also tells us a lot about you. So, um, Jane, thank you. We can shake. We'll hug when you stand up. Okay, good. uh, But Jane, thank you so much for doing this. I think that um, you know your story is so inspiring, and I think you illuminate a lot of important stuff about why you do what you do and why you've been so successful at it. So thanks. And thanks for the Tribeca Film Festival. If people are in New York, they should uh, find a way to go and participate. And if you're outside of New York, plan a trip for next year and come to the next one. And still one. plan a trip for this year. There are tickets available. They can plan a trip. All right, they plan a trip right come, now. Come, come. come. There are tickets for some things available. Absolutely. And you can come and um, go see Jane Rosenthal's movies. And... Um, Celebrator in any way that you want. Where can people find you on social media? You're on Twitter at... I'm on Twitter, Jane Tribeca. Um, Jane Tribeca on Twitter, and uh, you can find her there. She tweets once in a while. Yeah, I do. I. You do. We tweet, tweet back and tweet forth back a lot. And forth. All right, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Uh, if you like the show, please comment on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. And um, if you want to reach me, you can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. But don't send me any scripts or any ideas you want me to pass on to Jane. And also... I, if you don't like Hillary, I don't need to hear it in, in an email. I understand some people don't. Okay. Thanks. Bye.